Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Food and Sight podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist, talk to you about all things food, psychology and everything in between. Today's episode is very much a psychology one and I'll be aiming to do more of these straight psychology episodes in the future and I'll be asking you guys to suggest topics that are important to you for me to cover. Today I want to talk to you about something that I think is incredibly common but that you might not be entirely familiar with. I want to talk to you about something called the false self and how it relates to a more well-known phenomenon of people-pleasing. I'll be talking about what it is, what it looks like, and what the implications of it are for mental health and well-being. The false self was first described by psychotherapy supremo Donald Winnicott back in the 1960s. Winnicott, or the Don, as I like to call him, was a groundbreaking child psychotherapist, and he observed that in certain circumstances, the children that he was working with although they were perfectly intelligent and able to respond appropriately, seemed to lack a sense of liveliness. It was as if they were just going through the motions. And his contribution was that he recognised how this linked to depressiveness in adults. But to understand the full self, we first need a working idea of what the self is. And now that's actually a really complicated subject all by itself. And there's a lot of philosophical debate about, for example, whether the self even exists, and if it does, whether it's static or whether it changes over time. Buddhist philosophy, for example, states that there's no such thing as a self or a soul, and some neuroscience would support that idea. But while I think that's a really important and interesting discussion, that's not the concept of the self that I'll be referring to for today's episode. For the purposes of this discussion, the self can be thought of as the self-concept, which means how we view ourselves. So my self-concept is going to be made up of all the things that I believe about myself, about my qualities and characteristics, my likes and dislikes, my talents and my shortcomings. My self-concept will also include my dreams and ambitions and who I truly believe myself to be underneath what the world thinks of me or tells me about myself. The self is, of course, then very closely linked to consciousness, which is why it's often referred to as self-awareness. And self-awareness is something that develops over time. For example, when a baby is born, it has no idea that it exists. It doesn't know where the world ends and it begins. That's why if you watch a tiny baby, they can be fascinated by their own limbs and they can spend ages looking at their own hands in amazement 
because they literally don't know what this thing is and they're trying to understand it. Over time, they realise that they are able to control it and they can move it around and they can suck their thumbs and they recognise all of those sensations as belonging to them. In psychology, this is called existential self-awareness. Literally, I am aware that I exist in the world. On the flip side of that, you can see a lack of this kind of self-awareness in some animals. So when you put a mirror in front of a kitten or a puppy and it tries to fight its reflection, that's a sign that it doesn't recognise that what it's seeing is a reflection of its own body. It doesn't have that kind of self-awareness. But after you develop the awareness that you exist in the world, there is an assessment of what kind of existence that is. And in the beginning, for children, these tend to be very physical or concrete things, physical assessments. So am I taller or am I shorter? Am I older or younger, a boy or a girl? Very young children will tend to describe themselves in terms of the things that they physically are or physically have done. And this is what we call a categorical self. And again, that's literally what category do I belong in? As a side note, of course, this is the point that the social messages about different categories of human become really pertinent. This is a time, for example, when young black children will be vulnerable to internalising messages from society that black people are bad or that white people are superior. It's a time when girls will begin to question whether they are as good at maths or science as boys. So it's a really critical time in psychological self-development. As they get older, the descriptions of the self will change so that they are describing themselves in terms of more abstract things like relationships, likes and dislikes and talents. And again, these are going to be in comparison to what they see around them. Now, all of these aspects come together to form our self-image. And it's this broad idea that is going to be our working definition of self for this episode. Okay, so now I just want to outline a couple of ways, because obviously it's a massive subject, but I want to give you a sense of some of the ways that our relationship with the self affects our well-being. The first thing to say is that self-image is vulnerable to distortion, and those distortions can arise externally or internally. So for example, let's say you have freckles, and for a long time you were bullied about them. Now this might give rise to a belief that your freckles are ugly, and you might feel compelled to disguise them in some way. If this belief becomes embedded, then even when someone else comes along and says that they think your freckles are beautiful, it will be really difficult for you to believe them. And you might just think that they're being polite or kind or that they're taking pity on you. For people with anorexia nervosa, very often a dissatisfaction with an aspect of their lives gets mingled up with their body. And where objectively they might be underweight, what they see is a fat body and fat in our society is associated with inadequacy. Similarly, in men with muscle dysmorphia, which is a preoccupation with having bigger muscles, there's often a psychologically unresolved experience of being small or scrawny or in some way not masculine enough. It doesn't matter what people tell them about what their physique looks like now, the internal self-image is of a skinny weakling and it becomes difficult for these men to see themselves realistically. And this is an example of what's called a self-discrepancy. In self-discrepancy theory, there are three versions of our self-identity, and they are the actual self, the ideal self, and the ought self. 
and they're pretty self-explanatory. So the actual self is a judgment of the self as it actually is. And that might contain positive or negative attributes. So you might think that you have a good singing voice, but also that you can be spiteful. Now, both of these things might be objectively true. So the actual self is a sense of this is who I am right now. The ideal self is the view of how you would ideally like to be. So in this example, you might be quite happy that you have a good singing voice, but think that ideally you would like to be a little bit less spiteful. And the perceived difference between the actual self and the ideal self can be motivation to improve, literally self-improvement. Now, the ought self describes what the world tells you about who you should be that might be at odds with your actual self. So it might be that you can sing and you want to pursue a career as a singer, but your parents think that it's silly and they want you to work for the family business. In this case, you ought to take on the duties of your family and maybe you ought to be more grateful to have a job you can walk into and, and that sort of thing. Now, there can be discrepancies between all of these types of self, and these discrepancies or conflicts can affect our emotions. So, for example, I mentioned that a small gap between the actual self and the ideal self can be motivating, but if the gap is too big, then the person may experience depressive feelings as they believe that they will never become the person that they want to be. Similarly, if we feel that there is a big gap between the actual self and the ought self that we think others want or expect from us, there can be very strong feelings of sadness, shame, guilt and rejection. This is of course particularly true the closer we are to the other person or how important they are to us. So parents, siblings or partners often figure very strongly here, but it can also be friends or bosses at work if their opinion comes to mean a lot to us. And this is where we get into the false self. In one sense, we all have a mild version of a false self that we use socially. So for example, you might not be as wacky with your work colleagues as you are with your family or your best friends. You're still yourself, but maybe a slightly toned down version. You know, you might have a preference for wearing bondage wear at the weekends, but there are some social norms about what we find appropriate in the office. And so we all conform with these social norms to a greater or lesser degree. On a psychological level, these little shifts in self-identity aren't really a problem. They're just accommodations that we make for other people in society. And as long as we get to be ourselves at home or with friends or, you know, in the rest of our lives, then there's no real harm done. The problem comes when this accommodation or adaptation becomes more permanent or fixed or when it feels necessary for our existence. And children are incredibly vulnerable to this because, of course, they are so dependent on their significant relationships for their emotional and physical survival. So let's say we have a parent and child. The parent is under a lot of pressure at work. They work long hours doing a job they don't enjoy for a boss they don't like. When they come home, they're not in the mood for any more stress or hassle. They just want everything to be fine. In this kind of scenario, the parent might become intolerant of anything but happiness and good behaviour in the child. If the child is sad or grumpy or wants to complain about something that's happened at school, they might be told, I don't want to hear about it or don't you know how hard it is for me? Can't you see I've got enough on my plate? 
Over time, the child begins to understand that there are some states that it is acceptable for them to show and some that are unacceptable. There are some behaviours that will make the parent happy and there are some that will make it more likely that the parent will reject them or become angry with them. Now, of course, most parents will get snappy on occasion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm referring to an ongoing, persistent environment of intolerance to the totality of the child's emotional states. If this goes on, what can happen is that the child pushes down the other parts of themselves that they now understand to be unacceptable, and they only show the acceptable part. And this is the development of the full self. Another example, so a parent who feels that they never got the chance to fulfill their own potential may put a lot of emphasis on their child's success and the child can then believe that the parent is only happy with them or only loves them when they're getting good grades. So getting a B on a test can feel like the absolute end of the world. If a parent is very depressed or in some other way emotionally fragile or volatile, such as in the case of an alcoholic parent, then the child can step into the role of trying to take care of the parent or recognising the extent of the parent's emotional needs. The child can put their own needs aside and try their best not to be a further or additional burden to the parent. Essentially, the child perceives that there is a strong need for them to be neat tidy and presentable, either literally or in terms of their thoughts, behaviours or achievements. And there's no room for them to show their confused, chaotic, messy and rebellious selves, which are an essential part of emotional and personality development. And then what happens is that the child continues behaving like this with the rest of the world. And they use this strategy as adults to interact with friends, partners, bosses and the world as a whole. In clinic, I see the outcome of a lot of these kinds of parent-child dynamics, but it's not only parents that are significant relationships for us. Religion can be a really important one too. Imagine a child growing up with a very strong religious faith, and this is the faith of their family and their community, and it forms a large part of their identity. As part of that faith, the person understands that there are strict rules from God about their behaviour and what kind of person they should be in order to be good and to be loved by God and to eventually get to heaven. Many faiths and cultures for that matter have a strong prohibition on homosexuality. So you can imagine that someone growing up with these strong religious or cultural beliefs who begins to recognise homosexual feelings in themselves might try to deny them or push them down. They might try to adopt a heterosexual identity. They might even marry an opposite sex partner, all the while knowing that deep down this is not really who they are. But the threat of rejection or social or even existential consequences can be so strong that it feels impossible to step out from behind the mask of the full self. Actually, mask is probably not the best description of the full self because it suggests that it's something that people can put on and take off. At its worst, the full self is more like a suit of armour that someone lives in. Their real self is kept deep, deep inside and the full self is the one that the public sees. In this way, the full self is a protective mechanism. It protects the real self from feelings of rejection, guilt and shame, 
but it doesn't come without psychological consequences, some of which can be very serious. So let's have a look at those now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When they first start to recognise the false self, some people will complain of just a general sense of dissatisfaction. Existing within a false self can manifest as as a kind of a, a bit of a niggle, something at the back of your mind that tells you that something isn't quite right. Although on paper, everything in your life looks fine, maybe even very, very impressive, there's something that just isn't working. If the person isn't able to identify that thing, then it's likely that they'll spend a lot of time and energy trying lots of different things to work out which bit doesn't quite fit. So they might change their image very frequently, thinking to themselves, maybe it's my clothes or my hair, you know, I just need to shake things up a bit. Maybe someone isn't able to settle down in a job or a career, you know, they might stay in the same organisation, but they move offices or teams every year. Or they stay in the same careers, but they move to a competitor every three years, thinking that what they need is a change of scene. All the while, the thing that doesn't fit is nothing to do with what's happening outside, but what's happening inside. The suit of armour is beginning to get uncomfortable. It starts to feel less and less protective and more and more oppressive. The same thing can happen in relationships. Perhaps they leave or end relationships that are going perfectly well. And they say to themselves that there's just something about their partner or the idea of a relationship that felt suffocating when in fact it was the suit of armour. The persona that they created years, maybe decades ago, just doesn't fit anymore. Or even if they don't leave the relationship, somehow they're not fully committed there's some aspect of themselves that they always seem to be holding back. 
or they put a lot of energy into being the perfect partner, but they, they're just not able to relax and let their guard down. You know, they're always on their best behavior. They won't eat with their hands, even when it's just the two of you. And there's always something where they have to be their very, very best. Somehow there's always a sense of tension. Often I find underneath that tension is the anxiety about how lovable they are. Imagine if you've never really been yourself, you've never really shown your true self, then how do you know if people will love that true self? So you think, well, you know, this false self isn't much fun, but if I show my real self, I might lose everything. This suppression of the self can show itself in physical symptoms. In simple terms, it takes a lot of energy to constantly be suppressing an aspect of yourself. This might take the form of physical exhaustion or fatigue. It might look like irritability or anger. Someone might become reliant on alcohol, cigarettes, weed or other substances to take the edge off that underlying tension that they feel. And of course, all of these things have their own physical, mental and social health consequences too. Sometimes this conflict between who we are and who we feel we have to be turns up as depressive feelings. Again, if you've never really connected with yourself, it can be impossible to feel meaningfully connected to anyone or anything else. And that is often what depression looks like. And I've spoken before about the evidence for the physical consequences of emotion suppression, which leads to elevated stress or inflammation in the body and is associated to functional disorders such as IBS and chronic fatigue syndrome. Full self-identity can, as I mentioned earlier, play a crucial role in the development of eating disorders and disordered eating, as there's an aspect of eating disorders that are about compliance with the expectations and demands of society and denying your own needs. Another risk of the persistent false self is that it can lead to crisis or increase the risk of an emotional breakdown. For example, in my clinical experience, the midlife crisis occurs when someone hits a point, often around uh, the illness or death of a parent, where they seriously reflect on their lives and they call into question all of the choices that they've made. And if the conclusion is that they've spent the last 30 or 40 years maybe doing things to satisfy other people, it can be a really devastating blow to the psyche. And then it can feel like just too much work to turn an entire life around or to start again. If the person feels unable to face it, they may fall into quite a deep depression or be at heightened risk of suicide. So the balance between these self-identities can be incredibly serious. I also want to raise a point and maybe add some thoughts about the media in relation to self-image and self-identity. Media, but more particularly social media, can make the gap between the actual self and the ideal self seem smaller than it actually is. Because the owners of the accounts that we follow present themselves as just like you and me, it can distort the ways that the person might just have been lucky or been in the right place at the right time. So someone might say, I don't know, um, I went vegan and it got rid of all my anxiety and now I feel happier than ever. Now, someone with anxiety reading these messages might think, okay, well, we're pretty similar people um, and that solution feels pretty manageable, so I'll give it a go. 
but the apparent simplicity underplays all of the real differences between the two people and also all of the things that you don't see behind the message. So when this person doesn't get the promised results, they might end up feeling useless or dejected. Another challenge for identity development is the permanence of social media. And again, I've spoken before about how it's completely natural and healthy for people, particularly adolescents. And remember, you're neurologically an adolescent until you're about 25. Um, it's completely normal to experiment with identities or social tribes until you find one that works for you. And let's say, for example, someone is in the tribe um, and say, we wear yellow. You know, all we do is wear yellow. This is our thing. We are team yellow. But after a while, they want to move to tribe blue. But having spent so many years in team yellow and with a team yellow membership haunting them, it may make it difficult for them to feel that they can leave it behind. And they might feel worried about being called a fraud or a sellout or seeming inconsistent. And to be honest, they would have reason to be worried because what can happen a lot on social media is that, you know, people can write messages and they can send you comments with very strong should and ought self statements, right? So you shouldn't be like this or you should do that or I expected this of you. So there can be a really strong pressure to at least appear to remain in the same tribe or to put it another way, to have the same self image, even if that doesn't suit you anymore. And of course, there's a difference between a suggestion and an expectation or a demand. But if you're getting a lot of messages like this and you're vulnerable to the discrepancies between the actual self and the ought self, then being exposed to this much judgment could be a cause of quite significant distress. So we have a working idea of the false self and a broad sense of how it develops. And I say broad because, of course, this is incredibly complicated and complex and, and very nuanced. And you have to sit with someone for a little while before you can understand the process of their own self-development and if they have a false self of their false self-development and how it manifests. But broadly, the false self is really a form of extreme compliance with the expectations or needs of the outside world, trying to make someone else happy or trying to avoid rejection at the detriment of our own true needs. It usually shows up in life as a persistent sense of dissatisfaction that you often can't quite put your finger on or a sense of exhausted restlessness. Similarly, it can drive depressive feelings that are linked to the feeling of dejection or disappointment from the perceived gap between how we really are, the actual self, and how we ought to be, so ought self. You might see aspects of the full self in yourself or in your friends. On an everyday level, we refer to these individuals as people pleasers. And their early experience is often of trying to make sure that they are not a burden to other people. People who were too stressed, too tired, or too sad themselves to tolerate any additional demands. So early on, the people pleaser had to learn how to squash down their own needs and feelings and adapt to whatever was easiest for other people. And this adaptive strategy works until, as adults, the people around them grow frustrated at their apparent inability to say how they're really feeling or to ask for what they really want. 
And that's because healthy adult relationships are about negotiation and compromise. They're about give and take. And it becomes unpleasant for the other person to always feel that they're constantly in the position of taking without being given the chance to give. As I said at the top of the episode, I think this is a very common set of experiences. So I'm sure a lot of you can relate to at least some of the things that I've described. Again, on some level, we all have a false social self, but it's about the level or degree that we exist inside the armour of the false self and how much opportunity we have to be true to who we really are. For many people, breaking out of low-level people-pleasing usually doesn't take much more than practising being a little bit more assertive and realising that most people are completely fine with us asking for what we really want and sharing our true opinions. It usually even strengthens relationships because others feel like they really get to know you. For some people, though, the situation will be more serious. If you've relied very heavily on a false self, it can feel like you don't even really know who you are. You're not sure of your true likes and dislikes. And it can take a little more time and effort to reconnect with the authentic you that was locked away a long, long time ago. If you feel that you're really struggling to be yourself, I would really encourage you to talk to someone about that. It can take a little bit of work, but it's incredibly liberating to finally start living for yourself. Okay, that's all I have for you today. I hope that's been useful. I've already received a lot of questions about this topic, so I'll be following this episode up with a Q&A where I respond to all of those questions. And like I said, I'll be doing more of these pure psychology episodes, so do make sure that you're subscribed and keep an eye on my Instagram as that's where most of the action happens. I will be back soon with those answers for you and also some fresh guests, but until then... Thank you very, very much for listening and I wish you the very best of health. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.